listen to the lambs all are crying listen to the lambs all are crying listen to the lambs all are crying i want to go to heaven when i die come on sister with ups and downs wanna go to heaven when i die the angel waiting for to give you a cry i wanna go to heaven when i die oh listen to the lambs all are crying listen to the lambs all are crying listen to the lambs all are crying i want to go to heaven when i die my my brother how you walked across want to go to heaven when i die your foot might slip and your soul be lost i want to go to heaven when i die oh listen to the lambs all are crying listen to the lambs all are crying listen to the lambs all are crying i want to go to heaven when i die Hello there, and welcome to Mountain Talk. I'm Rachel Geringer. April is National Poetry Month, and we're celebrating here at WMMT by bringing you the voices and words of some important Appalachian and Southern poets. Earlier this month, we heard archival audio of Knott County, Kentucky's own James Still. And we heard from Danville, Kentucky native and Afrolachian poet Frank X. Walker. In today's episode, we bring you a 2012 interview with Nikki Finney from Profiles, a show out of Bloomington, Indiana's WFIU station, where they interview notable artists, scholars, and musicians. Nikki Finney is a powerful poet, born in South Carolina, who taught at the University of Kentucky for 20 years. She's a founding member of the Afrolachian Poets, and her book, Head Off and Split, won the National Book Award in 2011. I'm Ross Gay, and welcome to Profiles from WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and writers to get to know the person behind the persona. Our guest today is Nikki Finney. Nikki Finney is a professor of creative writing at the University of Kentucky and the author of three previous volumes of poetry, The World is Round, Rice, and on Wings Made of Gauze, and the author of the very recent Head Off and Split, which is the National Book Award winner for 2011. We're um, lucky to have her here. Welcome. Thank you so much, Ross. I'm glad to be here. It's a pleasure. So first of all, I'd like to ask you, how has it been with the National Book Award? It's a it's a big prize, and you've been at your craft for a long time, and to be sort of recognized in this sort of large national way. It's been really uh, quite electric to uh, 
to just kind of try to choose one word to to explain or symbolize what has happened since uh since the calling of my name that moment um you know i've been doing this a long time i've been writing i've been um at my craft i've been paying attention to words and language and stories and ideas and none of that has really changed mm-hmm. you know because i i am who i am and i like who i am and i like what i'm doing mm-hmm. the other thing is the world has come in to under, to know me in a way mm-hmm. that means the email is also electric mm-hmm. and the calls and the phone and all that but more than all that sort of outward stuff what i'm coming to understand maybe 6 or 7 months in is the sort of um communication that i can now have uh with an audience with uh with students mm-hmm. with um, lovers of poetry, mm-hmm. with people who are taking a, a I took a side path to mm-hmm. to this award. You know, I, this wasn't I didn't do anything other than study the craft and do my work to get me here. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I've been talking a lot with young writers about how important it is to sort of stay the course, mm-hmm. regardless of uh, who's applauding or who's cheering you on or you know, if it's one person or a thousand, mm-hmm. if it's somebody giving you um, something for your efforts, one person doing that or a, a, a organization or an award or a plaque or a gold star or mm-hmm. stay the course with your work mm-hmm. because writing is a process and coming to understand yourself as a writer is a process mm-hmm. and you can't. You know, I always use this analogy that, you know, I love ballet, but the knees and the feet go out very early in a, in a ballerina's life. Mm-hmm. And the beautiful thing about writing, if you stay the course, if you stay healthy, if you keep your spirit strong and keep your mind in the right, going in the right direction, you come into a different knowing about your work and about writing in your 40s, in your 30s mm-hmm. in your 50s that just gets better mm-hmm. I think so it's been a, a, a lovely time I love that that's um that's one of the things that's always so joyous to me I remember at some point watching a some performance by Diana Ross it was probably like 10 15 years ago she was maybe 50 years old I felt like God I'm yeah. so happy yeah. I'm that so you happy to write poems the right you know discipline right yes. yeah. I feel the same way yeah I feel exactly yeah. the same way. So that to be getting into yes. 50s and 60s and 70s, that's when, like, the brilliance the, can just The brilliance, shine. the light changes, yeah. but the light gets, you know, the beam gets stronger in certain things. I mean, I, I, was, I look at the work that's in Head Off and Split, mm-hmm. and you can't, you know, you can't compare books, mm-hmm. I, I don't think, mm-hmm. because, you know, the first book I did when I was 26, mm-hmm. the next book I did when I was 36, mm-hmm. the next book mid-40s, mm-hmm. this one early 50s. Mm-hmm. I'm like... All of those books reflect my life, my maturity, my mm-hmm. how hard I was working in you know at that point in my life. And you can't, you I could you can't do it any other way except to stay the course, stay mm-hmm. healthy, stay on some course that gets you to the next thing and then the next thing because you're learning and getting stronger. Hopefully, as you as you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You. Um, you write a good bit about childhood, and you also talk about having been 
a writer since you could sort of think. Yeah. So could you talk about that? How did your youth, your childhood, your family yeah. contribute to, to making you a writer so young? I was a uh, really contemplative child. Mm. I was, you know, I didn't want to do what the other girls in the neighborhood did. I didn't mm-hmm. want to play with dolls. Mm-hmm. I wanted to get a book. My mother gave me one of those little journal books that, you know, sometimes you give kids and they throw them under the bed mm-hmm. or, you know, with a little key to keep my, and they have five lines. So you can just, that's all you can write in for the day. Mm-hmm. And I just cherished it and I filled it and I still have it when I was nine. Wow. And it happened to be the year that Dr. King was killed. Mm. And in on the passage, April 4th, 1968, it says, Reverend King shot today. Mm. In my little wow. eight-year-old handwriting, you know, and that's all it said. Mm. And I remember um, my mom taking us from in front of the TV because all of it was going on. It was just a black and white TV. It wasn't like, you know, HD or anything like mm-hmm. that. But still, the images were flashing. And so I remember going to my room to write some more, you know, and I've always written. I've always been the child with the pencil or the pen, mm-hmm. the kind of not nerdy, just maybe antisocial or mm-hmm. something in that line or, or realm. And so because partly I grew up on a farm, my grandmother and grandfather always had chores for us. We, I spent my summers in the top of the state in South Carolina. Mm-hmm. And so we would do the things that we were supposed to do. And then she would say, okay, you can just go and do what you want to do. Well, my brothers would go fishing. They'd go to the, you know, the creek. And I would go out into the woods with my pen and my um, little notebook mm. to write about what I saw, to sort of document the, you know, the bee or the butterfly. Mm. And it was, you know, it's just for me. Writing at an early age was me trying to figure out what was going on in the world. Mm-hmm. And as I got older, 15, 16, you know, the 70s, um, the 60s, the, the late 60s, I was trying to figure out why were people so mean? Mm-hmm. Why do we, as human beings, why, mm-hmm. why are we so destructive? Mm-hmm. Those kinds of questions. So the questions left the, you know, the, the color of the, of the butterfly's wings to become something much more um, about social commentary, about mm-hmm. human relationships, about politics. Mm-hmm. And so it was a natural sort of discourse that my writing went from description, which I loved, mm-hmm. almost like a painter, mm-hmm. um, to what were we doing to each other as human beings. Mm. So you had a kind of political sensibility. Early as, on. As a kid. Early on. My folks were civil rights workers, yeah. and my dad was a civil rights lawyer in South Carolina. Mm-hmm. And my mom... And my dad were very involved in the NAACP. Mm-hmm. And so all of that was in the house and in the air and at the dinner table. And um, we were at a Catholic school, my brother and I. And when the schools were finally desegregated in South Carolina, I remember my dad called a meeting, like a family meeting. And he said, I know you like, you know, I know you like St. Jude's a lot, but mm. we've been fighting for this a long time. And so you're going to have to give up your kind of comfort zone there and go to this other school. And we were just, uh, we were speechless mm. that we were going to have to do that. But we understood that this was our part. This is what we had to do. Mm. And thus, we did, and it became personal. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just over there anymore. Mm. Um, we got the name call calling at school, and we got, we were in classes where there were two or three black students, and all our teachers suddenly, you know, were white, and we had we had um, African nuns. 
at the at the Catholic school where we were first wow. um, in school, you know, yeah. and so the world really changed um, as a result of all the all the struggle that we were, you know, insisting on. Hmm. That sort of um, political sensibility it runs through your work, and it's really really prominent in mm-hmm. this book, and yeah, and there's a story. I've heard you tell, and I, I think it's a beautiful story about your grandmother oh. asking you yeah. after Rice. Yeah, after Rice. I, my grandmother was in a small town named Newberry, South Carolina, and my mom and dad were in Columbia. And you have to go through Newberry to get to, to, get to Columbia. And so I, I loved going home because I always stopped there, and she always had some, you know, some fish fried or some something ready for me to eat, and we'd sit mm-hmm. at the table and... I'd bring her something, and then I'd go on home. And this particular time, she had red rice. It had been out a couple of months, and I hadn't seen her since I had given her her copy. Mm-hmm. So this was the first time, and I walked in the door, and she didn't have anything ready, and we weren't smiling, and she mm. said, I want to talk to you. And I said, okay. And she said, <clears throat> she held a book, and she said, now, you're my oldest granddaughter. And the oldest granddaughter has a certain role in our family. Mm. You were the sort of one who made sure everything was all right with the grandmother and Mm -hmm. things were passed to you that were not passed to other people and Mm I had certain responsibilities. So whenever she said that, it got my full attention. Mm -hmm. So you're the oldest granddaughter. And I want to say to you that you have to promise me that this is your last book. And totally caught me off guard. We were Mm -hmm. just out on the road with Rice. It was, you know getting some wonderful reviews, and people were saying some wonderful things. And here she, the closest person to me on the planet, was telling me that I had to promise her that this was my last book. Mm -hmm. And I didn't understand it at the time. I knew I couldn't promise that because I knew how much writing meant to me and how much it defined who I was in the world. I also knew that my grandmother was standing five feet away from me holding this book, asking me to do something, Mm -hmm. and she wouldn't do that if it wasn't important. So I told her I couldn't promise her that, and she was um, very, uh, she had a a very physical reaction. She turned, she turned her back to me, she walked away, and we didn't talk for several days, Mm -hmm. and that had never happened to us before. And I drove home and spent the weekend and drove back to Kentucky. And what I realized over time, over time being four or five months, that my grandmother had always been my protector. Mm. My grandmother knew had an uncanny sense about her life and how well she was or how long she would be here. Mm -hmm. And she knew she wasn't going to be here much longer. And she wasn't. But she didn't tell me that. She was trying to tell me, I won't be here to protect you. Mm -hmm. Your writing is getting uh, clearer, stronger, taking more risk. Mm -hmm. And I want you to stop because I won't be here to make sure you're okay. And... Once I figured that out, you know, it's a kind of like light bulb moment. And I was like, that's what she was doing. Hmm. And we never talked about it again. She got sick and she left the planet at the age of 99. Hmm. And I I keep that moment. I cherish that moment Mm -hmm. when in the kitchen there in front of the sugar bowl and (laughs) everything else because I... In her own way, and that was her spirit. She never would come out and say it. Mm. She would just tell me what she thought we should do. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's funny. It's like a 
a weird um, version, a different version of the story of of other poets like Lucille Clifton. Yeah. I think the story is that her she watched. Oh, did she throw? No, did her mother. Her mother threw her own poem into away. the into fire. the fire into the stove, and she mm-hmm. was at the top of the stairs watching yeah. her do that. Yeah, and that that marked her. Marked that made her right there. Yeah. In that mm-hmm. moment, she was okay. Yeah, I know what I have to do with my own work. Yeah, now. and your grandmother obviously was protecting you. Yes. she wasn't. In yeah. a way, maybe <clears throat> Lucille Clifton's mother was protecting something too. Yes, yes, or thought she was right. And I think that generation of black woman, mm-hmm. that generation of woman, yeah, that was so central to so much of their understanding of their role in the world. Mm-hmm. It was a protector. Mm-hmm. I will do whatever I have to do to get my child through mm-hmm. or my grandchild through. And black people as a whole were always about the next generation. Mm-hmm. How do we prepare them better? How do we make sure schools are better? How do we make sure they are okay, that they don't have to endure what we endured? Mm-hmm. And so it gets better and better by generation. Mm-hmm. And I think you're right. I think um, without a lot of language Mm -hmm. but with action Mm -hmm. they would do that Mm -hmm. because as we know that generation especially african-american women were not always about telling you the stories that they knew Mm -hmm. because they felt some of those stories were far too hard Mm -hmm. to hear Mm -hmm. they wanted our ears to stay away from that hard stuff Mm -hmm. and yet it made it to us anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you heard your heard your grandma. Yeah, but, yeah. But kept yeah. going. She um, it's so funny. I mean, we we were so close in life, and I was holding her hand when mm. she crossed over. Mm. And Ross, when she crossed over, I mean, I felt it come through her to me. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I I was holding her hands. I was we were at her bedside, and she couldn't talk. But um, I could just feel it. And that that also was a turning point for me, of course. I mean, the room went sad, of course, in that moment. But there was also something uh, celebratory about my being there. Mm -hmm. I was always the the child who was away from home. Mm -hmm. And I missed so many things Mm -hmm. that you can't run, you know, to be at Mm -hmm. when they're happening Mm -hmm. because they happen in the moment. Mm And yet I, I drove all day to be, I was every weekend coming to see her. And I had just gotten there two hours before, and my mom said she's been waiting for you all day. Mm. And two hours later, she let go. She knew. Yeah, and at mm. the National Book Award, mm. so to take that a step farther, mm-hmm. we're in this big cavernous room, Cipriani's, you know, everybody's dressed to the nines, and I'm just, I'm sitting there, I can't eat because I'm nervous, and... I feel this thing come over me, and I realize I start smiling. I was mm-hmm. like, "Oh, she's here!" And, you know, and I really felt like she had entered the space mm-hmm. in the way that only she could. And you know, so I was fine. Whatever was going to happen was going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. How much the other world? So, like, um, folks who have passed over. Yeah. Or like the sort of dream world. Yeah. How do those things come into your work? Mm. If you're talking about magical realism as mm-hmm. a, you know, as a idea or, mm-hmm. you know, part of, of the literary landscape, I love that. Mm-hmm. But you're also talking about something else. Mm-hmm. And 
you're talking about uh, where does the see i think the i think the the dead are living mm-hmm. i think they're here with us mm-hmm. i think i feel their presence mm-hmm. you know especially um elders that i was very close to mm-hmm. i'm i'm always talking to them on on my walks into the woods mm-hmm. and into the into the forest the forests that are left those sacred mm-hmm. spaces that have not you know been cut down and so i i believe that is a part of my existence mm-hmm. i believe that um they enter the physical living space that we inhabit mm-hmm. and so they come into and exit things that I'm working on, their presence is felt by me as a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to figure out how to handle it. Mm-hmm. I'm not writing a ghost story, fingers in the air. Mm-hmm. I'm writing from both sides mm-hmm. sometimes. Mm-hmm. And that's another thing that it took me a long time to be able to handle with a pencil mm-hmm. because of the baggage that's that sort of idea, those sort of, those kind of ideas come with. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, is has Nikki gone off the rocker uh-huh. here? Is she, you know, <laughs> no. I'm incorporating something that I feel that I believe mm-hmm. that I understand mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. That maybe as a writer of 20 or 25 mm-hmm. or 29, mm-hmm. I didn't understand. I didn't mm-hmm. know what to do with it. Mm-hmm. Coming out of the church, the South, mm-hmm. the traditions um, that that taught me. You know, those places taught me into my own understanding of spirituality. Mm-hmm. So that took that took some some. Um, some living and some uh, feeling before I could get my the words around it. Mm-hmm. The thing when I when I um, watched your National Book Award speech that gave me chills and um, was so moving to me was when you brought all the people into the room. That's when all the people came in the room. It was beautiful and it was true. It was true. And it was like, you know, it's funny that you should, no one has asked me this yet, but when I was writing that, and I think I told you we were walking over here today, I wasn't finished until I got to the hotel room. I was on the plane scribbling Mm -hmm. something. Mm -hmm. There were two lines that came on the plane. One of them had to do with, we all shiver together. Mm. The other one was, what if you wanted to write a poem? What if somebody wanted to write a poem? because I wanted to add the poetic element. Mm-hmm. But that thing about, I can't go in this room here on Wall Street when we're, you know, occupying Wall Street. It's on Wall Street? Oh, yeah. Oh, I didn't know. It's on Wall Street. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, so what is my role mm-hmm. as a person who is aware mm-hmm. that, okay, this is a wonderfully, this is a wonderful thing. But there's also something that I have to say into this moment mm-hmm. that must stir this pot and not just let the the what's in the pot stay settled. Mm-hmm. And it had to do with the door being open and though there may not be a an assigned seat for this person who lost a hand, lost his life, um, was blinded because they wanted to read or wanted to craft a poem, they can come in here if I'm here. And that was the, mm. that felt that I feel that about everywhere I go. Mm-hmm. And the the difference is your name is not always called mm-hmm. so that you can share that understanding mm-hmm. with the audience. Mm-hmm. Because we're all, I mean, it's a moment where you can easily get caught up in what do I have on? Yeah. Um, 
you know, have I, you know, bought the right bag? Mm-hmm. Is, mm-hmm. you know, is, is this, am I, am I acceptable mm-hmm. in this space that they have asked me to come to and mm-hmm. wait to see if my name is called? Mm-hmm. Well, beyond that, my responsibility to myself and to my ancestors is to not forget that I would not be there had it not been for their desire to read. Mm-hmm. And so they, they had to come in. Mm-hmm. And to st- and they had the people there who were, you know, dressed in the to the nines and beautifully, you know, arrayed had to understand that there there were many more there than hmm. you can see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I felt that very strongly. Yeah, and I uh, I wasn't sure what the reaction was going to be to that. I really yeah. wasn't. Yeah. I didn't. I mean, I didn't care so much mm-hmm. because it was the truth. Mm-hmm. But I really did not know how that would go over. Yeah. And, you know, part of the what you talk about and, you know, I was in in a, a, a brief workshop that you taught almost 10 years ago now. Wow. Was it 10 years? Yeah. Oh. And um, you talked about coming seriously to the page and you 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 brought a certain kind of attention and rigor and like this is no joke. And part of the, what's informing that is precisely the reason you brought those people into the room and that they were in the room which is that, like you say, the ancestors had to endure in order that we could do what we do. Be invited. Be invited. Yeah. And um, like you were saying on the walk over here, a lot of people don't know that. Yeah. They assume that, I mean, we forget struggle. Sure. We forget struggle. Sure. We live in a country, I think, um, that prefers to forget. Mm-hmm. Because it's easier to forget. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to run your um, political and social landscapes based on the last five minutes and not on the last 50 years or 100 years or 500 years, Mm -hmm. then you are going to use sound bites over truth. Mm -hmm. You don't have time for all that truth. And this is where I think... The voice of the poet, the hand of the artist, mm-hmm. the heart of um, anybody crafting and making anything in the 21st century has to reach over the soundbite mm-hmm. to that big pot of life mm-hmm. and, and pull something forward. Mm-hmm. It's our responsibility. Mm-hmm. And so I, I really do believe that as well as finding our own voice and and not trying to imitate or em, you know emulate somebody that's already been through here mm-hmm. but trying to really be who we are spiritually intellectually politically all those things but we do have a responsibility to look over our shoulder in mm-hmm. that what i call the harriet tubman way of living mm-hmm. that you i'm going through and you come through too I'm going through, and where's the next person? Mm-hmm. And that, there's, that's not a real popular um, way of living or thinking. I mean, if, when you hear about artists in America, you don't think collectively. You think mm-hmm. individual soul, s- s- sitting at the desk by self, doing the work. But yes, that's a part of it. But the other part is, okay, in the, in the African proverb tradition, the work is never finished mm-hmm. until somebody hears it. Right. Never. Right. There's a circle there. And so once I work on it as, and get it like I want it, then I'm looking for okay, <clears throat> somebody to listen. And that's, 
a collective nature to, I think, the creative process. There is a huge obligation in your work and your life to mentorship and teaching and, and that sort of opening doors, acknowledging that doors have been open for you and, and you're going to open doors for people. I wouldn't be here. Yeah. I, if Tony K. Bambara hadn't taken some time, if Nikki Giovanni hadn't said, you know, this is some awful poetry here, but up on un- under here is something that's really trying to push through. Uh-huh. So go back to the tech. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be here. Mm-hmm. I would. I wouldn't have four books. I wouldn't mm-hmm. be a teacher. I wouldn't mm-hmm. have won the National Book Award. So mm-hmm. I have to pay attention. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel in the best way, not mm-hmm. obligatory, but mm-hmm. I'm tethered to something. Mm-hmm. I'm connected. Someone has sewn me into this fabric. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I have to look around and, and pay attention to the whole fabric, not my little piece of it. Yeah. There's a story that you tell, and I've, I've heard you tell it before, and it's about a teacher mm. who, a professor, you're sitting on the wall yes. at Talladega oh, College. Oh, man. Could you that, tell that? Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad to tell it because it's kind of written into the acceptance speech, but it's written just as a, a blip. Mm-hmm. And it's such a great story. It was a Friday I was 19, and five of my closest friends, we were all English majors, were sitting on the wall together. And sitting on the wall at Talladega was what one did at the end of the work at uh, the school week. Mm-hmm. The, you know, the parties were about to start up that mm-hmm. night, and the sun was going down. And I saw Dr. Gales, Dr. Gloria Wade Gales, walking up the across the campus near us, and I was like, "Uh oh," because she was. I was her. Um, TA, but I was also she had kind of um, taken taken a liking to me. Taken, mm-hmm. she wanted me to. If I I said I wanted to be a writer, she wanted to see if I w- really wanted to be a writer. So she came closer, and she didn't look at anybody else on the wall. She looked right at me, and she said, "Miss Finney, <laughs> have you read every book in the library?" And so my chorus of girls here just laughs out loud as if she has embarrassed me. Mm -hmm. I don't laugh because I know who she is and I know she's asking me a very serious question. I say, no, Dr. Gales, I have not read every book in the library. And so she says, well, then I don't think you have time to sit on this wall. And she does this kind of black woman turn. You know, she's got (laughs) books under one arm and she's got her, you know, pumps on mm-hmm. and she walks off and they laugh and they're like oh she really embarrassed you and I stood up and I make a turn and I don't look at them mm-hmm. and I follow her like a little duckling mm-hmm. into the library up under Hale Woodruff's 1921 mm-hmm. Amistad murals mm-hmm. and I start reading and I, I read for the next five hours that night Friday night until the library closed mm-hmm. and I went back to the dorm and missed all the dances, Mm -hmm. and I knew it was a turn. I knew that I finally understood what it was going to take to be a writer Mm -hmm. in in my life. Mm. I love that story. And then, (laughs) so here's the footnote. The acceptance speech goes out Mm -hmm. viral. Mm -hmm. Dr. Gales uh, emails me. I haven't heard from her in 10 years, Mm -hmm. 15 years, and she goes, what is all this fuss I hear about, you know, some, some, some. What, what have you done with my name? On it, you know? and, she, and I say, oh, no, no, everything is the truth. Uh-uh. And she said, I remember that moment. Mm. She said, the wondrous thing is I didn't know you remembered it. Mm. And I said to her, 
it made me hmm. the poet that I am. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I could never forget it. Mm. I love that. Yeah, it's a I good story. That. You have a couple songs here that that you like. Yeah. Um, so the um, Nina Simone song? Oh, anything she ever put her mm-hmm. heart and lips on, you mm-hmm. could play. I mean, I'm, I, my father had all her albums when I was a kid, and he would just play them. And so they, Nina Simone is backdrop of my life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Every song, um, all day long, all in the evenings, on the weekends, mm-hmm. just he would put the needle on and it would just play. Mm-hmm. So I came, you know, I, part of my raising has everything to do with those songs mm-hmm. and that voice mm-hmm. and that life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So let's listen to Nina Simone's I Wish I Knew How It Felt to Be Free. I could read. 
You're listening to Mountain Talk on WMMT 88.7 FM, broadcasting from the Apple Shop in Whitesburg, Kentucky. On today's episode, we bring you a 2012 interview with renowned poet Nikki Finney from WFIU's Profiles. A founding member of the Afrolatian Poets, Nikki Finney was born in South Carolina and taught at the University of Kentucky for 20 years. So we're back with Nikki Finney, and uh, I was wondering if you could read the first poem in Head Off and Split, Mm -hmm. The Resurrection of the Errand Girl. The girl is sent for dinner fish. Inside the market, she fills her aluminum bowl with ice blue mackerel and mullet, according to her mother's instruction. The fishmonger, standing there, blood on his apron, whale knife in hand, asks, Head off and split? Translation, do away with the watery gray eyes, the impolite razor-sharp fins, the succulent heart, tender row, delicate sweet bones, polite, dutiful, training to be mother, bride, kitchen frau. Her answer, yes. Forty summers pass, girl no longer girl, her blood dries into powder-red dust. It is a time of animals on the move, on land, Fancy blue lights beep quotidian conversations deep into the inner ear of fast-walking humans. On thinning ice, polar bears turn cannibal, and the last male emperor penguin is holding one solitary egg on the quivering slope of his webbed feet. In the oil-drenched gulf, a flotilla of grandfather sea turtles floats, shell down, feet up. On hurricane-soaked rooftops, black people have been abandoned again. The errand girl, resurrected, woman, dutiful, grown, drives home as she often does to see the two who made her. On the way in, her mama calls to ask if she can stop and pick up dinner from the market, Friday, fish, tradition as old as the South itself. An hour later, she steps into Liberty Street Market, this fragrant, hundred-year-old fish house. Inside, the hungry wait wall to wall. Beneath her cotton dress, she wears what she could not wear when she was the errand girl, her poet's gauzy slip. She pulls her chosen fish by the tail out of the bed of ice that anchors all sides of the room. She extends her full bowl of ice-blue mullet and flounder to the fishmonger of her youth's son, a man her same age but of a different persuasion. He echoes the words he heard as a boy from his father, head off and split. Her answer is offered even quicker than the fish. No, not this time. This time, she wants what she was once left for, whole. Just as it was pulled from the sea, everything born to it still in place. Not a girl any longer. She is capable of her own knife work now. She understands sharpness and duty. She knows what a blade can reveal and destroy. She has come to use life's points and edges to uncover life's treasures. She would rather be the one deciding what she keeps and what she throws away. I love that poem. Thank you. That took a lot. I wish there's so many drafts of this. (laughs) How many drafts? Oh, over 100. Wow. Yeah. And all different, you know, stages. Uh, it's amazing to see it, you know, finally p- published. And mm-hmm. Because it, it started out as a paragraph, and then it, you know, morphed into five pages, and then it 
came back down to three, and then on, you know, now it's this, and it was one long um, paragraph, and now it's two. So it's like, it's amazing how writing changes. Um, I mean, this book took about six years to, from start to finish, from the moment I walked into the fishmonger's hmm. uh, place, and he said something that that phrase that I had heard thousand times before but never like that you know Denise Levertov says you smell a poem before you see it mm-hmm. and it's so true mm-hmm. in that moment I, I said there's something there while he was doing the fish and you know the other piece about this and it's a poem in the book he ha- you, you choose your fish out of the bed of ice you give it to um, this the white man who owns the shop but then he hands it to these three African-American young men in the back with these knives that are sitting <clears throat> over their heads. And, you know, you, you, you have to be mindful as an artist. And I'm looking and I'm at home and I'm saying, you know, every, on every front page of every newspaper, every news report, hmm. you know, uh, black males are, you know, incarcerated, mm-hmm. uh, being shot or, you know, in some sort of violent. Mm-hmm. And here are these three young black men with these knives like samurais mm-hmm. like different sizes and situated on the wall and i said anywhere else except in this space they would be arrested mm-hmm. for having knives like this mm-hmm. but in this moment these knives are like something else mm-hmm. and so that too was a part of the sort of you know what can i do with this mm-hmm. this is this needs to be painted mm-hmm. on the page so that we can discuss it you know so that in that moment, I remember head off and split, the violence of that, the cutting away of things that people didn't want to, you know, um, dirty their hands mm-hmm. with. And I thought, you know, the the more th- the older this society gets, the less we know about what we eat and the work we do and mm-hmm. the work we don't do and, you know, the work our grandmother did mm-hmm. and how how is it connected and how is it disconnected mm-hmm. and how are we so different because we don't know how to work anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we just want it, you know, to 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 bleep into our electronic s- stuff mm-hmm. and get the answer. Mm-hmm. My, I remember, you know, this doesn't have anything to do with that, but it <laughs> does. This man used to come to my fa- to our house, who was a who was a, um, ca- a book salesman, out of his car. Hmm. And any time he came to our door, my father would say, "Whatever you have, I'll buy it." Any book. Encyclopedia sets. I mean, the man knew he was going to make $25 off if he rang that doorbell Uh on any day. Uh My father bought any book. We were in a small town. There was no bookstore. Uh When I was about 13 or 14, the Piggly Wiggly started having, uh, instead of, you know, there was a magazine stand, and then they started having these um, soft cover paperback stands. Uh And I would, you know, twirl that around. Now, we could go to the library later, Uh but when I was... Um, little, the library was segregated. Mm. So there was no place to get books. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think about that in connection with the thing I said about the 1739 law, it's just process mm-hmm. that how can we keep information away from this community? Yeah. How can we keep, you know, the the, the goggles pulled down mm-hmm. to keep the books out, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. keep the ideas away? Mm-hmm. And my father was like, mm-mm. Anytime you ring my doorbell, I will buy whatever you have. And so we had books stacked up all around the house, cooking books, um, s- sailors, you know, just a navigation, anything. 
And I just became, um, I fell in love with that, uh, the understanding that if I could open that cover, there was something in there that was hidden, a little pearl, a little jewel that I had to find. And that's sort of what the the poem, too, the, the speaker wants to be the one handling the blade. Because there's something, and it's not turning, it's a violent image. It's yeah. not turning away from the violence. But right. it's like, I mean, there is like what you're talking about, the sort of fact of knowing yeah. how to operate in the world yes. in old ways and just in simple and right. smart ways. Yes. Um, but also the fact of like what lies beneath and being the one in control of. Yes. But we're taught that the blade, you know, that blade, that thing is mm-hmm. chopping off the head. Yeah. and But it is also can be an instrument of great precision mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and can um can offer great beauty mm-hmm. as a result mm-hmm. of what it can do mm-hmm. so it's not just what it is it's who's holding it mm-hmm. and what that person knows about its power mm-hmm. and that's the that's the thing i kept where, where the the edits were like oh this knife image this mm-hmm. you know what it can reveal yes 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 reveal not just cut away but mm-hmm. what it reveals about the fish, what it reveals about us when someone says, let me do your dirty work mm-hmm, for you. Mm-hmm. I'll take the fish back here. You won't have to mess with mm-hmm. it. Just pay me an extra dollar. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. But if you take it home and you do that, then you are, I think, closer aligned to the ocean, mm-hmm. what we're doing to the ocean, mm-hmm, what mm-hmm. we're putting in the ocean. Because you see on the left thing that wasn't cut out, a little ulcerated mm-hmm. something. Hmm, what's that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that poem, I mean, that, that I love that poem. It moves through a bunch of things. There's yeah. family stuff implied. Yes. There's this sort of theme of leaving, yeah. which runs oh, through the book. There's yeah. a lot of leaving and yeah. returning. Right. Um, there's the environmental stuff, the stuff about environment, environmental degradation, which I think is crucial. And um, and I'm kind of curious to hear you talk about that. And in, in some way, I'm curious to hear you talk about that as a black writer. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and I think... Um, Camille Dungy's beautiful book, Black Nature, Black Nature. the anthology, demonstrates how many of us do, in fact, r- you know, write about nature. But, but in other ways, the conversation about the environment largely we are black people people are left out of that Absolutely. conversation. Right. Um, and I love that there are moments where not only the sort of the natural landscape, the environment is clearly sort of articulated and and drawn for us, mm-hmm. but also that this political sensibility mm-hmm. about the landscape and about the environment and um, is, is sort of brought up. Yeah. So can you talk about sure. that? Sure. Um, two things. When I, my first book, um, On Wings Made of Gauze, I was mm-hmm. 26, um, and I was at a reading. I didn't do a lot of readings from this book, but I did, I went to Florida for like one of my first big, you know, <laughs> readings and I was reading I read from the book and I said a statement something like everything is political mm. and this man leapt from his chair and he just took me on about it and he was like everything is not political and to be an artist you cannot write politically charged things and I mean he just took me to task and I was young and I stood my ground, Hmm. and I knew that as he just kept, you know, talking, I was going to either turn away or turn to him and say, excuse me, Hmm. this is my life. Hmm. This is what I know. Hmm. And that's what I did. Mm -hmm. And that was a very um, um, important moment for me as a poet and as a writer because I could have 
you know, frozen and didn't, you know, didn't want to take him on or something like that. But that's not what happened mm-hmm. because of the people who had been in my life, mm-hmm. because there was a Tony K. Bambara who, after a six hour workshop, she and I walked outside and a man approached and said, you're Tony K. Bambara, the, the, you know, the, the writer. And I thought in my own little naive head, he's going to ask for her autograph. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she goes, yes, I am. And he pulls out mortgage papers and he goes well if you're a writer um we my wife and i need your help we can't fill these out we want to buy a house and can can you help us Mm. and my life changed again to see what a writer really was Mm -hmm. she said come to my house saturday at four o'clock i'll help you Mm. that's what i came out of Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. now how do i take that take my mother and father's life Mm -hmm. Take the civil rights movement, Dr. King's death, Malcolm's death, Medgar Evers, Rosa Parks, all of the things that were all around me and turn a blind eye to that Mm -hmm. because there's somebody in the world that says you can't write something strong and beautiful. Mm -hmm. My whole life I've been trying to write something strong and beautiful. Mm -hmm. I've been trying to not write a political poem, not... Um, I'm not trying to do that, but I am trying to say I can't leave out reality from this work that I love so mm-hmm. much. And so I've spent my life um, trying to see how the two can coexist. Mm-hmm. And this book, I think, reflects more work than I've ever done on trying to make sure that they not only coexist, but that they live closely together, mm-hmm. that they live off of each other, Mm -hmm. that they need each other Mm -hmm. even. Mm -hmm. So that's that's one thing. The second thing is I was always concerned, and this has to do with the ocean, Ross. I was born in Conway, South Carolina, half a mile from the Atlantic Ocean. Mm -hmm. We didn't go to the park to play or to park after church on Sunday. We went to the ocean. Mm And so that landscape, that watery world was so important to me as a girl. I mean, it was a dreamscape. Mm -hmm. It was my horizon. It was where we played. It was where I didn't know it. I didn't know then about the slave ships that had come into the harbor in South Mm -hmm. Carolina Mm -hmm. and how those waters were such sacred spaces for um, African-American folks. But I learned that. Mm -hmm. And it, it... further charged my relationship with the ocean, I've always been um, concerned with what we are doing to the planet, mm-hmm. either ocean or land or um, just the, this, this p- place that holds us, this mm-hmm. place that, that keeps us who we are mm-hmm. and teaches us so much about, should teach us so much about how to exist with another living thing. Mm-hmm. And so... I've always been, I wanted to be, before I was clear I could be a poet, I was in the sciences. I love, mm-hmm. I wanted to be a paleontologist. Mm-hmm. I wanted to look at fossils <laughs> and I uh, love the stegosaurus was mm-hmm. my favorite dinosaur. <laughs> Don't get me on that. <laughs> my first book that was got ratty in my pocket was a, a book on paleontology. Mm-hmm. And so it all connects with what we love and what we care about. Mm-hmm. I don't know how I came to care so much about the land. Maybe it was those walks at my grandmother's farm where I found Indian heads and, Mm. you know, knew that I was a part of 
something mm-hmm. that nobody was telling me much about. Mm-hmm. So I've always been connected to the earth and to the ocean and um, have always written about it. I've always written about it. Yeah. It's necessary. It's so necessary. Yeah. Um, I have so many questions for you. You know, your grandparents, the yeah. farming yeah. And, and your own relationship to the land, even yeah. in terms of gardening yes. and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but we're running out of time a little bit. Yeah. Um, community is another thing that's mm-hmm. a that's a big um, concern of yours, and yeah. and it comes through in the work as well. You know, um, to me, the idea that there are sort of there are stories circulating in mm-hmm. your book. Mm-hmm. Um, you're pointing to people. The epigraph is Tony K. Bambara. You yeah. know, um, and 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 you tell that story as well that yeah. she was a writer in the world yes. who had. She was a writer. She was a writer. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. And she was she not was, a writer in a in a ivory tower. No, she was not a writer like no. in her big house someplace. She was with people. Yeah. In a and world. She modeled that for me. Yeah. You know, I didn't know any writers coming up. I knew yeah. carpenters, and mm-hmm. electricians, mm-hmm. and re- reverends, and mm-hmm. you know, people who worked with their hands and had pencils behind their ear. But mm-hmm. I didn't know any writers. Yeah. So when I finally found some writers who would say, "Okay, come, you can come here and sit at this table and." Mm-hmm then that was the world to me because mm-hmm. I was like, okay, well, this is possible. It's got to be possible to somebody who feels it so strongly. Mm-hmm. And Tony Cade made it possible. She mm-hmm. really did. Hmm. She really did. Would you read the last poem in the book? Last poem. Oh, instruction? Yeah. Okay. Instruction final to brown poets from black girl with silver Leica. Be camera black-eyed aperture, be diamondback terrapin, the only animal that can outrun a hurricane, be 250 million years old, be Isoscles, Cirrus, Rhapsody, Hogan, Dogon, Hubble, stay hot, create a pleasure that can stir up the world, study the moon with a pencil, drink the ephemerides, lay with the almanacs, become the lunations, look up the word southing before you use it in a sentence. No southing is not a verb. Imitate them remarkable days. Locate all your ascending nodes. Chew eight times before you swallow the lyrics and silver lamentations of James Brown, Abby Lincoln, Al Green, Curtis Mayfield, and Aretha. Hey, watch your language. Two and a quarter is not the same as deuce and a quarter. Two-fisted is not two-faced. Remember, one monkey don't stop no show. Let your fat belly be quilts of quietus. Pass on what the great winemakers know. The juice is not made in the vats, but in the vineyard. Keep yourself rooted in the sun, rain, and darkly camphored air. Grow until you die. But before you do, leave your final kiss. Lay mint or orange eucalyptus garland. Double tuck these lips. Careful to the very end what you deny, dismiss, and cut away. I have spoken the best I know how. That's so good. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Ross. We've been speaking with Nikki Finney. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for this invitation. A delightful conversation. Thank you. This is Ross Gay for Profiles. Thank you for listening. Profiles is a production of WFIU from the studios of Indiana University Bloomington. The studio engineer and technical producer for this program was Michael Paskash. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at wfiu.org profiles. Thanks for listening.
That's it for this episode of Mountain Talk, featuring a 2012 interview with Nikki Finney from WFIU's Profiles series. Music on this episode comes from the June Apple recording of Ethel Caffey Austin with a tune called Listen to the Lambs. If you'd like to hear this or previous episodes again, you can find it on our website, www.wmmt.org, or download Mountain Talk wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Rachel Geringer, and from all of us at WMMT, thanks for listening to Real People Radio, and happy National Poetry Month. Listen to the lambs all a-crying, listen to the lambs all a-crying, listen to the lambs all a-crying. I want to go to heaven when I die. Come on, sister, with ups and downs, want to go to cry. I want to go to heaven when I die. Oh, listen to the lambs all are crying. Listen to the lambs all are crying. Listen to the lambs all are crying. I want Listen to the land.